You're listening to Green Dreamer, and I'm your host, Kamea Shane. If you're new here, and especially if you've just embarked on your sustainability journey, I really recommend starting from some of our earlier content, because oftentimes in later episodes, we pick up on and dive deeper into things that we initially introduced in earlier ones. And if you want my guidance in getting started, you can sign up to our Embark newsletter to get our most popular episodes across a wide range of topics recommended to you. You can find that at greendreamer.com slash embark. This is a primarily listener-powered show, and we are calling in more listener support in reciprocity for what we put out so that we can meet our Patreon goal and continue this independent media platform. So if you haven't yet, we would love for you to join our Patreon starting at a tip of $2, like one cup of tea, at patreon.com slash green dreamer. And if you've already supported us and share the show with loved ones who you think would also enjoy it, we appreciate you so, so much. Thank you. I don't understand how people end up creating this living wage, minimum wage. I mean, who is someone to decide what is a minimum wage for someone else? Who is someone to decide like what's a living wage for someone else? People have just created these kind of really unfair systems to exploit other people and you know the fair like a very small percentage of people so that they can have a a lavish life they don't understand that the person struggling to to eat or to get access to good healthcare or good education Hey, welcome to the show. Today we have here with us Nishanth Chopra. He is the founder of Oshadi, which is a sustainable solutions collective for a new regenerative artisanal fashion and textile system. They value the earth, nurture the soil, and respect their community of farmers, spinners, dyers, weavers, and makers, and designers first and foremost. They aim to really give back more than they take and to produce the finest organic clothing and textiles using ancient cotton farming techniques. Nishant, we're honored to have you. Thank you so much for being here. Thanks for having me. Honored to be here with you. So I would love to start up by hearing a little bit about your background, what got you interested in textiles, and then what inspired you to start Oshadi Collective? I come from a textile family. So my family have been in textiles for the last 60 to 65 years. I also was brought up in a textile hub. So as I grew up, I knew that I'm going to end up doing something with textiles. I finished my education, I got back and I studied in England. And one of the courses I did in England, it was about sustainability in 21st century. And it opened up like these different perspectives on on things like on treating people and treating environment. I think I already had it within me, you know, the knack for environment, you know, the love for nature. But when I got back, I started relating, correlating that with the textile industry, and I just realized that the mass production and the chemicals and there was so much going on as an industry, which was kind of degrading everything we do, like the relationships we have with human beings or we have with environment. And I decided that I would work with the rural craft techniques of India because they were like really sustainable. They were really modern, I would say, even though they are like ancient, they had a very modern approach in terms of like slow making, using sustainable hand-spun, hand-woven materials. And the farm techniques there were really traditional like and very organic and 
I kind of started working there and I learned a lot from my family's business in textiles and the general the textile industry in general we I learned what not to do from from the local industry and I kind of applied that to my work and yeah that's how we started we we launched as a women's wear brand and the curiosity to find more you know to become better as a as a supply chain so we started exploring the materials and then we realized the dyes were not okay so we started working with different dyes natural dyes organic dyes and then we realized the materials uh, where they come from the farm you know where it's grown they've been like chemically farmed so no matter how much we do in terms of dyeing it still has to change from the grounds up and i watched a movie called made kudurachi malai which is a tamil movie and it kind of like pushed me to start farming the very next day so the next day i woke up and i was like i i need to start farming like and we started a small 5 acre farm a couple of years ago so i think that was a brief uh how how we evolved as this CTSO company well i would love to go more into what you're working on shortly but i'd love to touch on the farmer protest so as we're speaking farmers across india are protesting as a part of a historic farmers protest and people's movement globally so on november 26 2020 a nationwide general strike of about 250 million people took place in support of the farmer unions and a lot of people are aware that these protests are going on but being there in india working with and alongside of farmers what can you tell us about why the farmers across india are protesting right now it was uh, because of the new bills which i personally think uh, the new bills are really forward thinking but it just are without the right foundation for example they've criminalized burning of farm residue uh, just so you know one of the main reasons for pollution in india india has like i would say like if you see online uh, six most polluted cities are in india and if you see five of those cities are in the place where people are protesting it's protests are mainly based on haryana and punjab and basically like there's a crazy residue burning after every harvest and i think it was a really forward thinking bill by criminalizing these things you stop it but it was without right foundation so what would farmers do if if something's criminalized they don't have assets they don't have resources they don't have knowledge to find a solution and if you to you know to do what to do with the residue so they are just like left helpless because if they burn it they 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 get criminalized and if they don't like what what would they do with that it, it it's a lot of charge it's a lot of cost for them to clean the farm after every harvest so automatically what they do is after everything dries out they just burn it and also the second thing most important thing was like the free market so the government was like you don't really have to sell in our authorized centers but you can sell to anyone you'd want it's a very free market but they didn't really keep a a minimum rate like this would be the minimum rate any company would buy anything over you can sell but you there's no minimum rate so i think these were like really forward thinking bills without any right foundation i think there were some solutions where government was like cleaning up residues and things but it's a huge population in india like small tractors or small helping one town or helping one specific place won't mean like you're helping the entire place so i think it's specifically those regions i would say like which after green revolution haryana and punjab 
they adopted these chemicals way quicker, way faster than any other states in India. Which means like if you see people where I live from, like I live in Tamil Nadu and people still follow traditional farming in correlation with chemical farming. So you can see half and half of both on the same farm. They still put organic compost, but they use like pesticides. But like farmers in Punjab and Haryana, they, they basically completely rely on chemicals and they've been doing so for the last 60 years or like since the Green Revolution. So the knowledge of the traditional farming has kind of like been lost. And it's really difficult for farmers to think like, oh, can this be done without chemicals or without residue burning or things like that? So I think that was uh, the protest and my thoughts on what it was. Yeah. So I was going to mention that we previously welcomed Vandana Shiva on the show, and she talked about the green revolution in India that devastated a lot of farmers. So for listeners who are not aware, basically the green revolution led to a lot of agrobiodiversity loss because farmers were encouraged to focus on high yielding crop varieties alongside the integration of agrochemical use like pesticides and so forth, which makes a lot of farmers often in debt and reliant on using chemicals from the chemical giant and big agriculture. And we know that this may be also correlated with the spike in suicide rates among farmers in India because it constantly puts them in cycles of debt. So it sounds like because they've become so reliant on these external resources and they had already been struggling from the Green Revolution, like you said, they don't have the foundations to deal with the changes that have been implemented. Am I understanding this correctly? Yeah, that's absolutely right. And the movie I told you, uh, it revolves around this farmer's life. He works really hard. Like, you know, it's a very true story. You can, it's 2021 and you can still relate to this. It's so bizarre, but so it revolves around this life of this farmer. He works really hard for 25 years to buy a piece of land and buying piece of land is like a privilege in India. It's a lot, a lot to do with like the society and status you have in the society. So if you have a piece of land, it means like you're better off than majority of this population in India, which don't own a piece of land. And that person, he buys a piece of land, he builds a house and he starts farming there. And as he keeps farming, he, he starts doing chemical farming and he gets loaned to buy these chemicals. So the first season he has a good harvest. And as things go, like keep increasing, you know, season to season, the input, the chemical input, it keeps building up and up and up because the soil starts building tolerance. It's just like any addiction any human being could have. Like, you know, they start doing drugs, they build tolerance, they need more and it keeps going. So I, I think it's very similar with chemical farming as well. And then there, there comes a point where the farmer like is not able to afford farming because he's, he's such like he's in a crazy debt. And that debt is given by like these fertilizer companies. And eventually the last scene of the movie is he's just sitting and he sold the land to the same like chemical company because, you know, he's not able to pay back the debt. And he's now like a watch keep, like, you know, an eye keeper for the farm. That's it which is so true, like even in this current era, people, so many farmers in India. And that's why, like, let's say you've got a land and you've lost it. People consider it as a shame in society. And that's why they can commit like suicides because they go from this place of living in a house and, you know, sending their kids to a good school and all of a sudden everything is lost and they're on the streets again. And a lot of people can't bear that burden, the kind of shame it brings to them and they commit suicides. And that's why like the highest suicide rates among farmers in India. 
Don't forget the earth For it's from the earth we came And don't forget the seas Or the forests that gave us our names Before the first man breathed Believed the earth was green So today you run a regenerative farm. You mentioned this earlier in support of Oshadi Collective. I'm wondering how common is regenerative agriculture across India and across your region today? And you touched on this too, but how might the bills that many farmers are protesting right now impact you differently because you're actually, you're practicing regenerative agriculture and you're not reliant on big ag and the agrochemical companies? I'm sure you already know that regenerative is a new term for ancient way of doing things. It's a new, like a twenty for like twenty twenty or twenty twenty one term for, or maybe like a very recent term for an ancient way of doing things. India has been practicing like regenerative agriculture as long as like people, you know, there's been a civilization. That's how things have been like. Or the ecosystem, people were like multi-cropping there was crop rotation people just didn't know these words like crop rotation pollination strip multi-cropping things like these and i think it's been it's been a really long time since we've been practicing this and it was kind of easy for us to adopt and adapt our farmland to the regenerative practices because the place i am from there are a lot of people like who have a wealth of knowledge especially the old people because their parents before green revolution practiced all these techniques the farming techniques the composting techniques the land preparation techniques the cultivating techniques the harvesting techniques for all these regenerative things low tilling no tilling all of that stuff was like practiced and i was kind of fortunate to meet these people i mean it's not being practiced on the farmland but there are people who are aware of these things and who have a wealth of knowledge so we learned from them and we kind of incorporated. It's a lot of trial and error because there's no book to what works here. And just so you know, regenerative agriculture has a different definition, a different like climatic conditions or different soil conditions or different places or different area because you can't have a set system. But it's just, I think it's it's just like mimicking the nature which is around you. And it's the most easiest thing to do, but also a really tough thing to do because we've transitioned to the conventional way of doing things with chemicals and just like going and convincing like a farmer that hey you can grow things without buying anything with just like cow dung people are like whoa this guy's crazy how can you just grow things with a cow dung or like you know organic compost but yeah on that note, in the greater fashion industry, today there are a lot of large Western fashion houses and corporations that mass produce their clothing in quote unquote developing countries like India. So how does this relationship reflect India's colonial history? And then what has been the significance for you to challenge the dominant industry in all sorts of ways from slowing the cycle down to honoring ancient practices and ancient craft to you building a seed to fiber to fashion brand that's all based in India that 
is entirely under, I don't want to use the word control, but you know, you have agency over this full process yourself. I think like not just like in fashion industry, but generally all the industries have always found places to make things for cheap. It's been a practice for like as long as anyone can remember that if you'd be able to make something cheaper in China, you'd make it there or in India, you'd make it there. And also like people think of people in living in China or India as disposable people where you could use a person and if he doesn't cater to your rates, you'd find a cheaper person. So you'd kick that person out. And it's this kind of mindset, which is so inhuman. Like you look at those people and you look at them as machines to produce something for you, to produce something as in, where could I make this cheap and really beautiful? There are people working for hours and hours and hours every day to, for like years to make like a fabric or to embroider a fabric or to weave a fabric. But it's just like a really preconceived, deeply ingrained within brain that if you see a brown skin, if you see someone who doesn't have a lifestyle, which you'd probably have in US or like UK, who, who lives in a small shack, it builds this relationship of this extraction. And I think people in India, especially, it's a, it's a mistake from both sides because people in India always gave in that, you know, they accepted that kind of exploitation. Because that's how it happens. Like, you know, if you give a chance for yourself to be exploited, anyone would exploit you. That's how it works. People just want to take things out from you. And and I think that this kind of relationship is starting to change with education. So a lot of young people, they're educated in the US or UK and they come back and they're like, whoa, this is not right. This kind of relationship is not right. And that's the kind of thing, like, you know, I had a thought process and I was like, whoa, like, I'm not a supplier, like, I'm not a machine, I'm not making things for someone, we are working together, it's a collaboration, it's, it takes a lot of time to make one meter of fabric, then like, just make a dress in India, you could just go to like LA or you could go to London and you could sell that. But making a fabric is such a difficult task. You can imagine like there are women in the farm they're bending down every day for nine hours in scorching heat, picking the cotton. That cotton then goes to spinning mills where there's so many young people who are being really underpaid spinning it. And there's so many young, young people who are people from rural India who don't understand what a minimum wage is. And they are kind of convinced or lured into weaving things for like a cheap rate or dyeing things, putting their hands into these toxic dyes. And just like this trigger, it starts from the farm and it keeps rolling over and over and over again and until it reaches a consumer. And like, as soon as it reaches the consumer, that kind of thought follows through. And like the consumer disposes the same piece of clothing very quickly. So I think it's this kind of relationship which we are trying to change right from the soil. So, you know, we, we get the brands, we, we work with brands as partners. And we start working from the farm. We tell them like, hey, this is how much time it takes to farm. This is how you change things. And you know, it goes to spinning and you change that relationship. I think we are, we are nowhere closer to where we want to be. But I think it's a start, it's a start for us to, to make sure we bring about a right change, fair income distribution throughout the supply chain. It's really difficult because like, you know, we still pay people 350 rupees a day, like some of the unskilled farmers. 
And just so you know, the local rate is like 200 rupees, but 350 rupees is $5. And per month, it's like $150, which is a lot of money for like a unskilled farmer in India. But it's still not a lot of money. And like, it's way more than the minimum wage, but it's still a lot less of money. And like, I don't understand how people end up creating this living wage, minimum wage. I mean, who is someone to decide what is a minimum wage for someone else? Who is someone to decide like what's a living wage for someone else? People have just created these kind of really unfair systems to exploit other people and, you know, the fair, like a very small percentage of people so that they can have a, a lavish life. They don't understand that the person struggling to, to eat or to get access to good healthcare or good education. And yeah, like these kind of relationships are really strange. I, I don't really know like how we have come up and ended up in the, creating this system, like a really bizarre system of exploitation and unfairness. But I think things are changing now with education and exposure and things like that, like media and online and all of that stuff. Yeah, hopefully we're headed toward the right direction. Although I do know that economic injustice and wealth disparity is increasing, at least in the United States, it's really accelerated throughout the pandemic. And I believe it's kind of a global trend as well. So I don't know how good we are at addressing that just yet. And like you mentioned too, these ideas of minimum wage and living wage, that's so dependent on so many factors that I don't know how helpful it is for somebody to just make these determinations for people and use them as benchmarks to to work towards. And a, a lot of times the people that are determining these numbers are not actually people who are facing the struggles themselves. So maybe there's also that disconnect where the people that have more of a voice to propose solutions and ideas are very disconnected from the people that are facing the struggles on the ground. And to connect your work with the farmer protests, I actually spoke with some frontline farmer protest activists earlier today. So these were people from the Trolley Times, which is a biweekly newsletter reporting from the protest for the protest, essentially so that they can share their own stories of what, what they're dealing with and what is happening. But what was really beautiful that they mentioned is that a lot of people who are engaged in the movement have abandoned the extractive and capitalistic ways of being that are encouraged by the dominant system, as in everyone in the movement that are taking part in the protest is just kind of taking care of each other and are making sure that everyone has food to eat, everyone is taken care of, and just money isn't really an issue. So it sparked this sort of gift and sharing economy and really built a strong sense of community. And I know that community and collaboration are things that you really value as well at Oshadi Collective. So I wonder if you can speak to how you're incorporating these values into your work and how you think that may carry you and the farmers that you work with and artisans through challenging times, especially when you're confronting powerful interests, whether it's in the fashion industry or with big agriculture. It's crazy that anger and hatred kind of brings humans together and not the love. Like if you see most times, it's the anger, it's the rage. It's, and 
I always think about it like why why can't people like just come together with means of love and just be together but that's that's exactly what we try to do like we are not building the relationships we have with like artisans or the farmers or anyone who works in the supply chain it's not a an employee or like a a worker and a company relationship it's a very different relationship because they get to have a say on how much they'd like to be paid so we we work on a very different payment model where we have this three part ratio where a third of the income what we get get from sale goes to the makers another second part of the income goes to the company and third part is the profit so we don't really have a minimum wage we don't really of course we have a minimum wage that someone has to be paid at least like a living wage which is considered a living wage by a government system or like a local system but all the people we work with they get paid at least twice or at least three times what what the minimum wage is and we built a system where we for the last year or so even even since the covid like you know all the tailors or like an artisan or the weavers when they don't have like a specific work they do have a replacement work so we train them to do a separate thing and that's how things were back in the day in india if you if you think about this khadi movement or like when there was like this rural economy in india there was an exchange of work so the same family who was farming cotton would spin the cotton and would also weave the cotton would also like make a clothing and then would also sell in the local economy you know the local locality so i thought like that was such a good idea because we would not be able to give consistent work cuz we don't get a consistent order like from a brand that you know we don't have a promise saying that we would be buying this definitely like every season for the next 3 years so we train all of the people who work with us to do everything so the tailors when there's a lot of less of work they kind of then help us out with the qc or like the quality control people can also weave or the weavers can also work in the farm and the farmers can also weave so we are creating this community you know after you see like after during the covid like in march i i, I still remember there was no like it was a proper lockdown literally we have 20 acres which the land is prepared and we've invested a lot of money on that and we got an agricultural permit from the government to do the farming and you won't believe like everyone from our company like you know even though he was a weaver or like a tailor or a seamstress or like whatever it was everyone was working in the farm to make sure there's like a proper irrigation system of course like you know we followed all the covid guidelines and we were not allowed to go within these premises and there were like a minimum people working on the farm and we were we were to live in the same locality but this kind of exchange and this community we build it's so resilient you know they could this kind of community kind of or an exchange you don't have issues with like orders or you know not getting something there's always something to do at different processes or parts of the supply chain thank you so much for sharing this and certainly the entire fashion industry has so much to learn from your leadership and this relocalization of the textiles supply chain that you're really building so thank you so much for your leadership and before we wrap up what else would you like to share with our listeners that I didn't get to ask you about and do you have any cost to action for them that you want to share I was asked once you know what is sustainability to me for me sustainability is intention and just because there's a regional term there's this new term 
Does that mean like all the brands need to adopt that or, you know, just get that because, you know, it's going to drive the profitability. It has to be an intention to actually change. And that's when a real change can happen. We can move towards a fairer world. And I think that's what I would say, like just having right intentions when we start building relationships. The butterfly and the honeybee Oh, let the birds fly and let the people sigh. Be sure to forget the you and I. Oh, love what you have, but sunny not your hands with the blood. Oh, oh, sweet. What is an uplifting social media account or publication you follow or a book that's been really profound for you? Uh, there was a book called Volga to Ganga by Rahul Sankritian. It talks about how we have evolved as a civilization. It just like, it just feels really ephemeral, like just this color cast and just like us being these wild human beings and from the four ages, like scavenging through the forest and how we evolved into like these systems we have created, these clothes we wear, the the kind of image we have of ourselves as like human beings and these superior beings, you know, it just like makes everything irrelevant and shows that we are just like another being on the planet. What do you tell yourself to stay motivated and inspired? I just wake up like I never think about these things as in what's motivating or what's hopeful. You just wake up and it's just a privilege to wake up and do what I'm doing now and be in a place. And just being in this place is a, a hope, a sign of hope for me to carry on what I'm doing. And what makes you most hopeful for our planet and world at the moment? I think there's a lot of talks about change and a lot of positive, positivity. If you go on Instagram, everyone wants to change, like especially after COVID, there's been such a profound there's been a lot of self-reflection and people are like, have come out. A lot of people have come out with this thought of, you know, making things better. And I think it's a sign of positivity and hope and a start of change. Well, Green Dreamer, if you want to learn more, um, you can head to www.oshadi.in. That is Nishant and their website. And you can also follow them on Instagram at Oshadi underscore collective. Nishant, thank you so much for joining us today. It's been a pleasure. So, so glad to get to have this conversation with you. What final words of wisdom do you have for us as Green Dreamers? Let's say just having a really collaborative relationships in anything we do, who we, whoever we deal with, like even if it's a supplier or, you know, it's a book, anyone we deal with, if, uh, if you have a collaborative and a right intended relationship, it could change everything. You know, it, we, don't, we don't really have to like follow these agendas or these terms, just a better relationship and, and understanding of the person, the other person could really change the things. 
this episode was brought to you by our community and contributing listener patrons. To support this independent media platform, you can head to patreon.com slash green dreamer. The song featured in this episode is Butterfly and the Honeybee by Jake Gauntlet. Our audio producer is Scott Donnell. Our production management intern is Spencer Carter. And I'm your host, Kamea Shane. We're deeply grateful to have you and for your support. And I will catch you soon in the next episode.